All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you always. I'm thankful to Sandy for giving me the invite. As uh, This is just a delight for me. It's always enjoyable, particularly to speak to men. As uh, I sort of began in ministry talking to men, and God has always kept that door open, so I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful to have my son and my father-in-law with me. Uh, this morning, and to know many of you, if you are a first of Anner, this is going to be a little bit of a repeat of some things we've been in lately, but there's only a few first of Anners in the room, and most of you haven't uh, heard the things I'm going to share this morning, but if you go to Titus chapter 2, I'd like to base comments out of Titus chapter 2 this morning, and I've had our church in the book of Titus since uh, the month of July, we're almost through. We're going to be in chapter 3 this Sunday, so we've been working our way through. And I'd like to emphasize some things with you this morning that I've been emphasizing with my church. Just so you know where we're going, there's a progression of emphasis in Titus. Titus is a small letter, only three chapters long, usually covers two pages in a Bible. And the progression of emphasis in Titus is that uh, Paul begins with leaders in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Actually, Paul begins with God, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, with uh, God's initiation, uh, how God takes the initiative, and then how leaders are to be initiated into their role over the church. And then he talks in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1 about false teachers pseudo-leaders. I say this often to our church, it bears repeating that 26 of 27 New Testament letters warn us about false teaching. Think about that. Only Philemon has no warning about false doctrine and those who perpetrate it. This was a huge issue in the first century and it was going to continue to be on into the 21st century. So then we get to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Paul tells Titus, here's the things I want you to say to these uh, age groupings in the church, age and gender groupings. First, he speaks to older men. Then he speaks to older women. Then younger women are given some instruction or instruction that Titus is to give them. And then younger men. And what we did in our church is we took a Sunday apiece with each of these age groupings here in Titus chapter 2. What older men, older women, younger women, younger men are to do and to be uh, as followers of the Lord Jesus. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. We're not going to talk on the women's side. We're just going to talk on the men's side. So we're going to take uh, especially verses 2 and 6 where older men and younger men are addressed and talk about that this morning. So look with me now. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, speaking to Titus specifically, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then verses 3 through 5, older women younger women, and then you get down to verse 6, likewise urge the younger men 
to be self-controlled. And if we read the whole passage, we would see that self-control is the common denominator. It's the linkage that connects all of these age swaths, these groupings in the church. Older men are told to be self-controlled. Younger women are told to be self-controlled. Younger men are told to be self-controlled. And because older women are to teach the things that younger women are to be, it's implied that older women are going to be self-controlled as well. So this is the one thing that is keyed upon for every age grouping in the church. And we're going to key on that this morning because, as you see in verse 6, everything that young men are to be gets uh, enveloped into this one term, self-control. But first, the other things that are said to us, the things that are said specifically here to older men in verse 2. And I'm, I'm going to draw the line of demarcation because you're probably wondering, who is the older man and who is the younger man? I'm not going to name, well, I will. I'll go ahead and name uh, an age. Um, I'm going to say that if you're a baby boomer or older, you are an older man, all right? Just for sake of categorization, you know, stop ribbing each other, you know, just deal with it. Um, if you are Generation X and younger, Generation X is, sociologists typically put that at about mid-30s to into the 40s, okay, younger man, um, I'll tell you later where I, where I fall on that continuum. Now, verse 2 says that older men, it, it, it kind of gives us a um, two, two, uh, pair, uh, well, two triplets here. Older men, first part of verse 2, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and then sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, or hope. Steadfastness and hope are similar ideas in Scripture. So taking these, uh, these two triads together, in looking at verse 2, the first part of verse 2, these first three things, there's nothing particularly or distinctively Christian about these three things. Sober-mindedness, dignified, self-controlled. What I'm essentially saying when I say it that way is that there are a lot of men out in society who have chosen to live this way for whatever reason. You can find men who are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled as a way of life, and they don't have any particular allegiance to God or the Lord Jesus. Um, I'll give an example that uh, George Will, the columnist, himself a sober-minded, you know, dignified kind of fellow, was one time on the Jay Leno program, and I've, I've just you know, some things that stick with you that you don't forget. And I was watching Jay Leno one night back during the presidential contest between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. And if you've ever seen Jay Leno, uh, you know, he's, he's sitting there behind his desk and he's talking to George Will, and he, and he finally says to George Will, George, come on, isn't Bob Dole just too old? It's another way of saying that this guy's just irrelevant. And without missing a beat, George Will's response was just classic. 
He says, not when the subliminal message of your campaign is bring back the grown-ups. Okay. Um, and I just remembered that. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was actually pretty, pretty, uh, pretty funny. So the first part of verse 2 here, this first triad, this, this cluster of three things in the first part of verse 2, there's nothing distinctively Christian There's nothing necessarily Christian about these first three things in that a lot of men can approximate this as just good male character. These are traits of the grown-ups. Not until we get into the second part of verse 2, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. It's in the second part of verse 2 that this begins to, to look distinctively, particularly Christian, because there are definite theological reference points for these three things in the second part of verse 2. Look at the verse again. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. What does that remind you of as a triad? 1 Corinthians 13. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love And the greatest of these is love. It's the cardinal Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. Paul is saying here, watch this. Paul is saying here in verse 2 to Titus, to teach older men that faith, hope, and love ought to be second nature to older men in the church. That they are to personify the cardinal Christian virtues for everyone else. Now that's huge. That is huge. Older men ought to be the dignitaries of faith, hope, and love. That's the phrase that I want to leave with you. Taking this idea of an older man being dignified and who a dignitary is, an emissary from from one to another, Older men are to be dignitaries of faith, hope, and love. And this applies, implies a, a deep, abiding, cultivated attentiveness, relationship with the Lord. What Paul says in Titus 2.2 is that older men are to personify the very best, the cream of Christian belief and practice. Faith, hope, and love. And, and all of this is undergirded Actually, if you go on with Titus, it's undergirded by what's coming uh, in chapter 2 in verses 11 through 15. Verses 11 through 15 in chapter 2, really the exclamation point on why we're to be distinctive in society and why we are to give ourselves to the things that we do and to keep ourselves from the things that we do because he says, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, there that is again, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you like to draw lines in your Bibles, you can draw a line between an older man's steadfastness here in verse 2 and verse 13.
because this is why you're steadfast. The steadfastness of Christians in general is connected to the return of the Lord, that he is returning for his church, and therefore we endure with hope. Hope in the Scriptures is not wish fulfillment. Hope in the Scriptures is not hope so. It is no so. It's confidence. Older men have lived long enough to get uh, disgusted with the way things are. Disgusted with the way things have become. So much so, they can lose hope. And when they lose hope, they have lost something foundational to steadfastness. Just to take this one aspect of verse 2. And older men have long lived long enough to get tired with the way things are. And they want to check out, disengage. They want to say, this is somebody else's mess now. You know? And uh, nobody wants to listen to what I think about it anyway. Kinds of comments, which is counter to love. Taking that part of verse 2. Because what love does is it gives oneself. It keeps engaging over and over and over again. And not just when the conditions are right, but in all conditions. The waiting that's enjoined upon everyone in the church in verse 13. I mean, that's the next great event on God's calendar. Whenever that's going to occur, the return of the Lord Jesus. This waiting that is enjoined upon all of us, it's not passive. It's very active. It's not disengaged, but it's attentive and it's alert. It's going to the final whistle, the final bell. It's not walking to the finish line or limping there, but running through the tape. And it's just those who are closest to the final whistle. Those who are closest to the finish line who are to show the rest of us what finishing well looks like. Those closest to the finish line are the ones who exemplify for the rest of us the greatest faith and the greatest love and the greatest stamina and watchfulness in giving themselves to what is good and what is sound. And you see that word sound there in verse 2. Sound in faith. Sound in love, sound in steadfastness. We get our word hygiene from this Greek word that is here for sound. And when we say hygiene, we think of it primarily as cleanliness. You know, washing your hands and taking care of your teeth and things like that. But in the Greek, uh, hygiene conveyed more the sense of total health and well-being. Not just cleanliness, but total health and well-being. And whatever is going on in an older man's health, and as we age, we know that health becomes more of a concern physically. And whatever is going on in an older man's physical health, his health of spirit is vibrant. Because he's been on the journey with Jesus for a long time. And you can't spend that much time in Jesus' company and not have his character rub off on you. Now, I am 41 years old. 
in case anybody wonders. So that means with life expectancies being what they are, I'm in midlife. All right, I'm on the youngish side of midlife. And I'm not trying to hang on to some youngish, you know, idea here, but I am in midlife nevertheless. And I think that gives me an interesting perspective in coming to this, uh, this passage in Titus, talking to older in the church, talking to younger in the church. And the way I compare it, I'll give you a good old Alabama uh, metaphor, is I, I compare it to the hitch between the tractor and the trailer. Because the hitch is where the tension is. And there's a tension to midlife. The tension is that um, your youthfulness is not so far behind you as to be a distant memory. You still feel the tug of youthfulness. But true maturity, to put it that way, is out in front of you. And, uh, and you, you see it coming. And it doesn't seem so far off anymore as it once did. You don't yet, you know, feel old or look old, but you are not getting any younger. And you still think that you can do a lot of things that you did in your in your youth. I still think, and I can, I can go out and play a couple of hours of pickup basketball with young guys. I just need Advil after I do that because I go home and I think, what is wrong with me? Why am I sore? Yes, I'm a runner and, and, and take care of myself, but, uh, you know, two hours of pickup basketball is a different deal. And so you gotta, you gotta get some ibuprofen in you. And that's just indications, you know, that you're, you're not what you once was. Uh, I could quote a country song here, but I'm not gonna do that. Uh, Toby Keith, isn't that Toby Keith? I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. It's just for your edification this morning. Uh, I tell you, I have a life outside the church. I listen to country music. But um, in looking at these things that older men are to be, I include myself in this because I'm not getting any younger. And what these things are in verse 2, when you look at this from the perspective of midlife where I am, is what's in verse 2 is a growth course. Uh, my course is being charted for me here. These are the avenues into which I'm to grow. Who am I to be as an older man someday? I'm to be a dignitary of faith, hope, and love. I'm to still be engaging. And uh, older men in the church, as dignitaries, it's really a I came up with a creator word. I, I, the difference between being dignified and being stodgified, okay? Stodginess, stodgified is not a word. Maybe eventually it can become one. But dignitaries of faith, hope, and love, this word dignified here in verse 2 conveys the idea of worthiness of respect. And as I was saying earlier, you know, a dignitary is uh, someone you send. Usually we think of it as... Uh, representative from a country, you send your best people over to this other place to represent your country's interests so that that country will have a good impression of your people, your whole nation, based on the people that you send over to them. Well, likewise, God has sent older men into his church as respectable dignitaries of faith, hope, and love. And I contrast dignification to stodgification 
in that stodgification is a real temptation for older men. Due to what I was saying earlier about older men living long enough that they can get disgusted with the things, way things are. And they can get tired and want to disengage. Stodginess happens. Older men become stodgified when they think they should get respect because of their age, but they are not giving faith, hope, and love. And something's broken when that's the case. You know, one of the things that older men have to determine as they age is how they want to position themselves on the back nine of life. And what a lot of older men want as they get older is they want respect. They want younger men to respect them, respect their experience in life, respect their views, appreciate where they're coming from and the perspective that they bring. They want their counsel sought instead of shunned. They want their person esteemed. They don't want to be seen as too old, which is another way of saying irrelevant, etc. and so on. But these things older men want to get and want to have in their older years, they come as a result of giving themselves. It's not that you arrive at some age and now it's the getting time. You arrive at that older time of life and it's the fruition time of what you have given and what you have invested in others' lives. And in particular, what older men want to receive from younger men, they get as they have invested in younger men. Some older men assume that they ought to be given places of respect and uh, influence and honor simply by virtue of their age. And indeed, the scriptures talk about respecting an older man. Do not rebuke an older man. You know, uh, the Old Testament, you go back to the Levitical law, you will, you will honor the face of the old man in your, in your presence. But you get these places of honor and respect and influence by what you're giving. And I've interacted with some older men who've essentially said to me, you know, younger men don't want to be around us. And I've had to tell them that's not true. Younger men want to be around older men who want to be around them. And if they see the entry point into an older man's life and see that they can learn from that guy faith, hope, and love, then they will give that older man respect and honor and influence in their lives. But if a younger man believes that all an older man sees in him is a target or a sounding board for his criticisms or his concerns or his complaints, that every time he sees you coming, you've got something wrong, then what happens is the shutters of his life close. And it's not that an older man can have no corrective presence in a younger man's life. It's that that corrective presence is cultivated through relationship. You know, I've gotten close to older men. I've got older men in my life. Don Riley is one of them who speaks into my life. Yeah. You know, shoe fits. Thank you, Lord. 
But the older guys that I've got in my life, you know, they can correct me because they've built a relationship with me. And if they see me going in a direction vocationally or domestically with Lynn and the children, that they say, not good, don't go there, don't do that. I will listen to that because I have been welcomed into their lives. They've shared their life with me. It's life on life. And these guys show me what faith, hope, and love is about. And they're not stodgified. They're dignified. There's a difference. Older men, I'll say this to you. Stay at your post and fight through those things that tempt you to live disappointed and disengaged. You know, you may look at your career and you may say, ah, gosh, you know, I've got a lot of regrets for my career. You may have some regrets in your family. Your kids didn't turn out the way you wanted them to do and be. You've got to fight through those disappointments because what those disappointments will whisper lies to you that you're done, that you're checked out, that nobody's interested in what you have to offer. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. And you have, to, you have to get away from that. Your dismay at the direction of the country. We get it. We understand. You don't have to keep complaining about it all the time. Okay? Uh, your disbelief that the church has realities about it today that you never thought was possible coming up. We get it. We understand. The challenge for older men is what are you going to show us of faith, love, and hope? Because biblically, that's, that's where you're, you're to land. That's what we need to see from you. Now, younger men, the quickest way to knock yourself out before you're done is through lack of self-control. And younger men are told in verse 6, urge the younger men to be... Self-control. This is enjoined on older men as well, we saw in verse 2. But young men, you know, among all these age groupings in Titus 2, there is generally speaking more expressed concern for younger men as an age grouping than any other age grouping in the church. And why is that? Because younger men, my generation, Generation X, Generation Y, just under me, which is sociologists usually go about 16 to 32, also called the millennials. Generations X and Y, the young men of the world, we become adults. They are becoming adults in a society that for the most part does not know how to train them to be adults. It knows how to market to them. It knows how to entertain them. It knows how to eroticize them. But it doesn't know how to prepare them for the responsibilities of life that younger men are often waiting longer and longer and longer to engage and take upon themselves. Look at the way verse 6 is phrased. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. The urgency of that. Our society does not know how to urge young men to their highest and noblest. It just knows how to play to their urges. And if younger men prove disappointing to us, that is, if younger men seem to be perpetually adolescent, or they seem to be fantasy-driven, or they seem to be cowardly 
and not taking the lead in relationships or they seem to be domineering or even if they seem to be feminized. If younger men prove disappointing to us in these ways, some of the fault is with us in the church. You can say what you will about the culture, but the culture is itself. The world is the world. It does what the world does. The church is called to a distinctiveness that the world is not called to. And so I don't have expectations of the world other than it just is what it is. But I do have expectations of the church. And we can say what we will about the culture, but the church has been complicit in failing younger men. And a lot of older men have abdicated showing younger men how to be godly in life-on-life ways. And women have tried to fill in the void. And it's just not the same. Add to this a sense that... uh, Pastors are no real help when it comes to this, even if we want to be. I was reading a book a few years ago by an author who was uh, making this particular case. Here's how he puts it. He says, the clergy have long had the reputation of not being very masculine. The mainline liberal Protestant minister in the early 20th century had a reputation for being soft and working best with women. This reputation provided fuel for fundamentalists who denounced liberals as, quote, little infidel preacherettes. It's the golden era of preaching. In sermons with such titles as, quote, she-men or how to become sissies. But all clergy were open to attack. All had to face the popular stereotype that men of the cloth were neither male nor female. They were something in between. The clergy were seen as exempt from masculine trials and agonies. They were part of the safe world of women. As one layman put it, quote, Life is a football game with the men fighting it out on the gridiron while the minister is up in the grandstand explaining it to the ladies. I don't know, but I think I've just been called a girly man in, uh, in, in reading that particular thing to you. Uh, now, one response to this, and it's not that that's off, I mean, there, there's, that's true in a lot of places. But one response to this, a reaction to it, has been what I'll call the, the get in touch with your inner warrior movements that sort of catch on every, uh, every decade or so in the church. Some guy writes a book, he decries how the church is losing its men. Uh, how the the church is not led by real men and what happens, the church guys all turn out and they start beating their chests and they they have tribal councils and they slather on the war paint for Jesus and they get all lathered up to go do what? What do we do? Do we give ourselves to the hard work of discipleship? Do we give ourselves to the constant work of mentoring, life-on-life involvement? Usually not. Usually, what the godly men or masculine men books and pep rallies achieve is a short-term, emotionally charged response to a need that requires a long-term, rational, life-on-life attention. From working with men for years, Christian men, I have found that it is not hard to get Christian men worked up about something. 
What's hard is to get them to give themselves to what is lasting in doing something about it. Because too many men want a quick fix. They want to believe that going to this conference or reading this book is going to solve everything for everyone. The reality is conferences and books are as far as they go, but they're very limited. And what goes so much further is the strategy of Jesus himself. Life on life, investiture of life, dignitaries of faith, hope, and love, taking younger men and teaching them how to be the same, influencing them toward the same. John, in his first epistle, he doesn't use the word self-control, but listen to what he says to younger men. Because what he's saying here is self-control and evidence. John says, this is 1 John 2.14. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. About how many of our young men could we write that to today? Just think about the young men you know. Could you write to them, I write to you, whatever his name is, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil. That's an obedient life, what John is describing. Strength. I write to you because you're strong. as strength of character. And the word of God abides in you, the abiding word of God. And you've overcome the evil one. That's an obedient life. That's the harvest of cultivated self-control. And that's why self-control is so desirable. That's why self-control is a great catch-all word in verse 6 for everything that younger men are to be. It's ensconced in this word. Self-control is a kind of keeping yourself so that you can give yourself. It's not just keeping yourself. It's keeping yourself so that you can give yourself and give yourself more fully to God greater trust of Him, greater love for Him, greater obedience to Him. That's the categories of life in which the Scriptures point us in our relationship with God. Grow in trust, grow in love, grow in obedience. A young man keeps himself from certain things that do what? Things that are going to squander his strength. Things that are going to make him deaf or dead to the Word of God. Things that are going to leave him vulnerable to the evil one, to Satan. A young man keeps himself from these things so that he can give himself to God in greater trust, in greater love, in greater obedience, greater faithfulness. Now, there's a couple of approaches that we take to self-control that I don't think are very helpful in bearing lasting fruit. One approach we take is that we see self-control as essentially a clamping down on our will. That self-control is about mind over matter. When I ran cross-country at North Alabama, there was this T-shirt, and uh, the T-shirt on the front said, Motivate the mind, body will follow. Well, that may work in cross-country at 5 a.m. for a long run. But it's, it's terrible theology. It's a Stoic philosophy, and Stoics are not good people typically to pattern after. 
So when we uh, see self-control as primarily a clamping down on our will, that's not very helpful. It's not to say that the will isn't involved, but that's not primarily what self-control is. Nor is self-control primarily about re, um, recalibrating our emotions where I tell myself, you know, if I don't really want that because uh, if I do want that, I'm going to make myself miserable if I go there. You know, many earnest attempts get made at self-control, but they employ the strategy of trying to convince myself that I don't want to go there, I don't want to do that, I don't want to see this, and the problem is I do. I do want to go there. I do want to see that. I do want that experience. Even if I feel horrible for wanting it, even if I'll feel terrible for giving in to it, this strategy is flawed in producing true self-control. And this is because self-control is not so much about clamping down on my will or, or warning my emotions as it is redirecting my affections. This is the key to, to obedience and self-control. It's the affections, what you really love. Self-control is not so much a matter of resisting the will as it is redirecting the want. What do I really want more than anything? And this is how self-control is activated. I redirect my wants more than clamping down on my will, more than warning my emotions, don't go there because it's going to be terrible if you do. My motivations are turned. My affections are altered. Self-control is about who and what I set my heart on more. I've been helped in this by an old sermon by a 19th century Scottish preacher called Thomas Chalmers. And maybe Sandy's mentioned this to you or if you've heard a speaker mention this um, the expulsive power of a new affection. You can go to Google and just put in Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. This, this old sermon will come up. It's a 19th century sermon. It's a little hard to read, but rewarding if you can plow through it. Because what Chalmers says in this message, he's a sermon that he preached about how to stop giving yourself to things that you, you don't need to give yourself to. A timely topic in any era. And Chalmers called those things old affections. And he said simple denial of the old affection won't work. The void left is too empty. This is why Brett Favre cannot retire. Okay? Because he has nothing to replace the football void with. Um, simple denial of the old affections doesn't work. The void left is too empty. And so what has to happen is you have to replace the old affection, the old thing, with a new affection, a new thing, a better thing. And so what self-control is, is the application of this strategy of displacement of the old affection with a new affection. Chalmers knew, he was a realistic preacher, he knew that we love bad things. We want even destructive things. The old British atheist turned uh, Christian statesman Malcolm Muggeridge said it. 
The most extraordinary thing about human beings is that we turn our backs on ways we know to be joyous to give ourselves to things that we know to be disastrous. There's no other creature on earth like us in that regard. And so the strategy of self-control is the strategy of giving myself to the new and greater affection. And so what happens when self-control really takes root and begins to bear fruit in my life is that the bad thing that I love, the bad thing that I want, gets displaced. It's still there, the desire for it, but it gets displaced, it gets overwhelmed, it gets covered over by a greater thing, a greater love. Chalmers called this the expulsive power of a new affection. And cultivating new affections is work. It requires spiritual disciplines. It requires abiding in the Word of God. It requires giving yourself to Christian community. What's one of the most common problems of young men? Young women. Right? It's a problem for older men too. Older men, told to be self-controlled. And I'll have a young man, he'll come to see me, and the young man will say, I love young women. I can't stop looking at them. I look at them online. I look at them, you know, all the time. Meaning, leeringly, lustfully, is primarily just a sexual object. And this is true, I tell him, you know. You cannot, by sheer exertion of your will or by trying to convince yourself you don't want to look at them, because you do. God made you heterosexual. And so it's a natural desire, but it's out of control. There's no control here. So what do you do? And what I try to help that young man realize is that one thing he has to do, in addition to spiritual disciplines and abiding in the Word, and, is he has to expand his vision. Because his vision is sort of this way, and he's got to expand it. He's got to take a wider view. And this is going to be something he's going to, he's going to have to learn. He's going to have some starts and stops and progress and three steps forward and two back and such as that. But you know how you ever, you'll go to a scenic overlook. You've all been to scenic overlooks. You've gone to the Smokies or Fall Creek Falls or you've gone to the Grand Canyon. And uh, you come up on this scenic overlook and all of a sudden, you know, wow. I remember standing in Kenya and looking at the Great Rift Valley. You know, it's like God took his finger and went from Israel to Tanzania. Just, it's really something to see. And I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't really know much about it. And we come to this scenic overlook and we look down and it's just massive. You know, how much your eyes are taking in at that moment. Had that experience of the Grand Canyon. And you get to this, up to the scenic overlook and what do you have? You have, a, you have a brochure in your hand from the visitor center that has a picture of what you're now seeing. And the little picture on the brochure now seems very inadequate and even very remote and, and so much smaller. Why? Because your, your vision, you're now taking in the whole vista. And it's It's amazing. And the same principle applies here in expanding your vision for self-control. You have to find a new beauty in purity. 
you have to come to see pornography as marring and cheapening and manipulating that beauty. You have to see it as visual infidelity. You have to see it that way. And ultimately, you have to be captivated, so captivated by your creator and designer, by the love of your Savior for you, that your deepest needs and desires are met in that love. And while you still want the love and the physical touch of a woman, absolutely, it is never everything to you. Only He is everything to you. And only then does self-control begin to, to set its roots in and fruit. Self-control is the difference maker, just to put it in a simple phrase. Self-control is the difference maker. It's the difference. It makes the difference between obedience and disobedience to God. It makes the difference between discontentment and contentment with God. Uh, when you autopsy disobedient action, whether it's cheating on your spouse or cheating on your expense report, everything from a temper that never quiets to a mouth that always runs... Whenever you autopsy disobedient action, you will always find a, de a diseased self-control contributing to the death of obedience. Same with contentment. When you autopsy the actions of discontentment, whether it's discontent with a spouse or a kind of material discontentment that just generates all of this conspicuous consumption, you will find a diseased self-control contributing to the death of contentment. Self-control is the difference maker. It makes the difference between disobedience and obedience. It makes the difference between discontentment and contentment, between even malcontentment and contentment. Um, Self-control makes the difference between freedom and bondage. This is the paradox of self-control, that we think of self-control as so limiting and such an orientation of no, but self-control is actually very freeing. I said earlier that uh, self-control is keeping yourself to give yourself. Keeping yourself from what? That which will squander your strength. That which will make you deaf or dead to the Word of God. That which will make you vulnerable to the temptations of Satan. This is bondage. But older men and younger men keeping themselves from such things do so in order to give themselves. Give themselves to God in greater trust, in greater love, and in greater obedience. And that's the epitome of freedom. Why? Because then you're not haunted by regret. You're not spectered by shame. You don't have this... This sticky feeling that somebody's going to find out one of these days. I'm going to be discovered. There's nothing to hide. You're able to move in freedom with people without any sense of uh, something is going to, the wheels are going to come off and I'm going to be discovered to be the hypocrite that I am. Self-control is the difference maker between bondage and freedom because you're not entangled by sin's passions. One more and then we're done. Self-control also makes the difference between courage and passivity. I joked with my church when I was preaching about um, younger men that I was going to yell and scream that morning. You know, 
said, younger man, just get ready. I'm going to just, you know, I'm just going to lay into you. And it was a joke because I don't preach that way. I don't have that kind of temperament necessarily. Caleb, don't say anything. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, but um, if I was a yeller and a screamer in preaching, on this point is where I would yell and scream at a lot of younger men. Because it seems to me, and this is just my observation, that a lot of younger men seem to be either, either, it seem to be either frighteningly domineering, and this all comes out of insecurity, frighteningly domineering with younger women such that they are a threat to younger women, and I think they ought to have this pounded out of them by other young men, If, uh, but that's just me. Don't quote that going out of here. Um, I one time told somebody, I, I, would, I would like to start a ministry called the Avenging Angels. And this would be a group of Christian hitmen whom we would send out to all the derelict husbands and fathers, you know, in our congregation and beyond, meet them in an alley and uh, beat them with the grace of God, you know. This is for your, your own good. This is for mercy. But nobody's taken me up on that. I've yet to find anybody to be an avenging angel, but uh, I'm still looking. Or younger men tend to be really shamefully passive in that young women seem to threaten them in ways that they won't take the initiative. Um, Caleb, don't be embarrassed by this. I'm going to use you as, as an example. When Caleb wanted to ask a little girl to go with him to a function, I had him go to her father and ask him, can I ask your daughter to this event? Now, this is just a pet peeve of mine, but guys who text girls, you know, what are you doing? Can I ask you a question? And they text the question, come on, let's teach, let's teach that that doesn't work. Um, I did that because I wanted to teach my son how to interact with men in something that's very close to men, that is their daughters. And it gives him good experience to sit down in front of a guy and say, I'm interested and I'd like to, I'd like to ask her. But it also says to that girl, that you care enough about me that you would actually go to my father um, and see that my father is important in my life. It's a way of, of driving a wedge in a young man's life and saying, the one thing I won't let you be, son, is passive. You can grow up in my home and you may get out on your own and you may do a lot of dumb things. But as far as it depends on me, one of the things I want to teach you is how not to be passive and to engage and to take the initiative in relationships um, because you need to, because God's designed it that way. And I'm not being old-fashioned in saying this. I'm being a biblical realist. Self-control is what compels a young man to be his highest and his noblest, the best that he can be. So much in our society is appealing to guys' urges. And 
a lot of folks in the church just kind of sit back and let it happen. We're even complicit. We're giving into it. But we have to recognize that we don't just live our lives for ourselves. And you probably get tired of hearing this. But you have your life to invest it in others. And you were brought into the love and grace of Jesus Christ to give and pass on that love and grace to somebody else. Self-control is a mold by which we are shaped, not just into respectable and admirable men, but godly men who can be entrusted by God with great things. Even if nobody ever knows what those great things are. God looks and sees a servant in whom he's well pleased because there's a shape to his life that maximizes the name of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord. God said in Psalm 138, he's exalted above all things, his name and his word. And self-control is a way of honoring his name and his word in all things. Well, let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Father, for how you have uh, instructed us, what you call us to. Thank you that your commands are not burdensome, that you've put brothers around us, older brothers, younger brothers, whom we can uh, benefit and be benefited by. Thank you for so much life on life that happens in this room. Thank you that this morning I'm speaking to so many men who've got this and are doing this. But we are still frail and feeble and we still struggle with our desires and conflict. Father, I pray that self-control takes root in us as a fruit and evidence of your spirit so that we maximize your name and your praise in this life that we have. And we don't give ourselves to things that deaden us and dull us to your word. Things that make us vulnerable to your enemy and to ours. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory forever and ever. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ the righteous.